Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So much, and it's an honor to partner with VBM with you and um, to learn Torah together with each and every one of you here tonight and beyond. Um, so, uh, happy Hanukkah, first of all, to everyone. A happy Hanukkah. And uh, as we celebrate Hanukkah, as we celebrate the menorah's light, we ought to celebrate also the light within. Now, um, light by default, think about this, but light by default faces the outside or uh, yearns to reach as many corners of the world as possible as it can. And if everyone is a light, we ought to face uh, the outside just as much and yearn to spread that light to as many corners of the world as we can. So if last week... We spoke about actualizing our potential by looking at the mirror of ourselves, who we are. If you remember the miracle, those of you who were here, the miracle that we are and unleashing that miracle with good deeds and so on. Today, I want to speak of actualizing our potential, not by looking at the mirror of ourselves, but rather by looking at the mirror that God has for us. Not just the dreams that we have for ourselves, but the dreams that God has for us. And I'll explain. I'll explain through a very interesting midrash. But before we even get to this midrash, I want to tell you the story of this uh, uh, woman who came uh, to the heavens after 120 years. And uh, the angel who greets her says, uh, you've been a very good person, but before you go to the heavens, there's one test you need to pass. That's uh, the test we give you in heaven. The test is spelling a word. And the word for the day is love. She says, oh, that's very easy. L-O-V-E. The angel says, oh, welcome to paradise. A few days later, that same angel goes back to her and says, look, you were so good at spelling. I want you to substitute me for a few hours. I just have to go on another mission. If you don't mind, anyone who comes, just ask them to spell a word. If they know how to spell that word, then they can go to paradise. She says, no problem. She stands there by the gate, and lo and behold, who comes? Her ex-husband. <laughs> and she says to him, look, I'm sorry, but the rules are that you have to know how to spell words, so please uh, spell this following word for me. If you know how to spell it, you'll go to paradise. He says, I've always been good at spelling. What's the word? She thinks and thinks and thinks and tells him, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> But uh, when I explore this Midrash, I have this story in mind because, again, this Midrash shares something, Midrash that I don't bring the reference to, but shares something that's, I think, very, very powerful and something that we ought to, 
to think about as we think of the mirror that God has for us, the dreams that God has for us, not just the dreams that we think we have for ourselves. The Midrash says as follows, that here in this world, we have our thinking upside down, especially when it comes to birth and to death. Why so? And it gives the example of a ship loaded with goods going on a mission to deliver those goods somewhere else. The people at uh, the shore, at the beach, sending off the ship are filled with anxiety, right? They don't know if the ship is going to reach its destination. They don't know if it's going to be successful in, in unloading the goods and in eventually doing what it's supposed to do. So they're worried. On the other side, those people who do receive the goods, who do welcome the ship, when the goods are delivered to them and when they're eventually able to use them, those people are happy. Okay, one side is anxious, the other side is happy because the mission has been fulfilled, the goods were delivered, and that's why the second set of people is happy. In this world, it's upside down, the Midrash says. When someone is born, when that baby is sent on his mission, that ship is about to sail in those seas of the world, how do we react? We're happy. But the mission hasn't begun yet. We should actually be anxious, like the first set of people. When the ship has reached its destination, that's when we should be happy. But what do we do when a person passes on and when he's fulfilled his mission in this world, as we believe everyone does at the time of their passing? What do we do? We cry. We're anxious. But that's when we should be happy, the Midrash says. Think about it from that perspective. Anyone who's experienced a death in their family or with a relative, they know that they, 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 they cry, they're sad. But if you think about it from a, from a Midrashic standpoint, you can also bring, infuse some happiness into that moment of, of mourning because at the end of the day, it's a mission that was accomplished. But speaking about this Midrash, I want to look at the four questions that the Talmud presents that are posed to us after we've completed our mission. And in a way, as we look at those four questions, we also look at God's mirror for us, as we said, God's dreams for us. Because what is this mission about? What mission does God expect us to fulfill in this world? And if we can understand what that mission is, we can also thereby understand how to actualize that potential, the godly potential, the potential that God has in store for us and God expects us to actualize. So after we pass on, God wants to check that you fulfill your mission. And he asks us these following questions. And again, please, I want this to be much more of a conversation, a discussion than anything else. If you have any questions, disagreements, please feel free to speak your mind. Um, and also, I'd like to ask as many people as possible to read some of the references for today. So let's look at those four questions that are asked of every single human being, as the Talmud says, after a person passes on to see if that ship has already, has indeed completed its mission, that existence has fulfilled its potential. Let's read the first reference. Does anyone want to read? Anyone? Diana, please. The four, four questions will be asked of man in the world to come. The first question is, were you faithful in all your givings and takings? The second question is, did you set aside fixed time to study? All right. The third question is, did you participate? We all did good on that one. 
<laughs> That's right. The third question is, did you participate <laughs> <But not just laughs> in the mitzvah to be truthful and multiple? All right, yeah. The fourth question is, did you hope and work for the world's redemption? Right, so on the surface, these questions seem uh, very simple, very easy to understand. Were you faithful in all givings and takings? That usually relates to business or to any type of of uh, interactions we had with people. Did you set aside fixed time for study? You can say yes, you're here tonight. So you did set aside uh, times for study. Number three, did you participate in the mitzvah of being fruitful and multiply? And four, did you work and hope for the world's redemption? These are four simple questions. But really, as uh, we'll soon see, they each hide many, many secrets to how one can actualize his potential based again on what God wants from the person. Those questions, again, indicate what God wants from every person, and therefore they each hide layers and layers of meanings behind each of them. I'd like to immediately begin with the first question. What does it mean? Were you faithful in all your givings and takings? As we said, it could very easily relate to business transactions, to being honest with our money, with our character, with uh, what we convey to people in general. But really, I believe, and I'd like to offer a different take, I believe that the key word in this question is not your, your givings and takings. But the key word is, were you faithful? Were you faithful in all your givings and takings? What does it mean to be faithful? I think first and foremost, before we can even interact with the world honestly, we have to be faithful to ourselves. If we are not faithful to ourselves, we can't be faithful to others. If we lie to ourselves, we, can't, we lie to others. Yes? What's the Hebrew word here for Ne Oh, very good question. Um, Ne'eman. Ne'eman. Ne which, by the way, comes from the word emunah, that I'm sure many of you know, which again means faith, faithful. So the first and foremost question God asks us is, were you faithful? And then if you were faithful to yourself then surely you were faithful to others. If you were a person of truth, that emanated truth, then, then all of your interactions, all of your givings and takings were also most probably faithful. Now, what does it mean to be faithful to oneself? We spoke about this a little bit last week, but first and foremost, it means being faithful to our personalities, to our gifts, to our skills, to our talents. God gives each and every one of us a set of skills, a set of talents, that might be very unique. And we have to be faithful towards them by actualizing those gifts. If you're an artist, that means God expects you to be an artist. If you're an athlete, that means God expects you to be an athlete. If you're a scientist or if you have that brain, you'd God is expecting you to be that. I remember growing up in South Africa, uh, there was a very massive advertisement campaign to encourage people to go to school and, uh, and afterwards to college. Their slogan was, the brain is a terrible thing to waste. And it's so true. But it's not just the brain. It's any gift that God gives you. But that's on the external surface. On the deeper surface, was I, was I faithful also to my soul, to my identity? And in order to understand what this means, I'd like to actually use a story that's connected to Hanukkah because it happened specifically when the Syrian Greeks entered the temple and violated it as much as possible, desecrated it. Um, as we mentioned last week, we spoke a little about the history of Hanukkah uh, during the year 164 BCE. It was the year of the victory of the Maccabees, but three years before, uh, that's when the Maccabees began to uh, fight 
the Syro-Greeks, but what they had done to Jerusalem, and particularly to the temple, was beyond imagination. They brought uh, the temple of uh, the idol of Zeus to the Holy of Holies, okay? Holy of Holies in the temple. They brought prostitutes to the Holy of Holies, became a brothel. They uh, sacrificed pigs in the temple, knowing how uh, prohibited they are in the Jewish religion. And then, of course, they fought against anything Jewish. It's not that they wanted to murder our bodies, but they wanted to murder our souls. Uh, anything that seemed too Jewish for them was immediately uh, prohibited from keeping kosher to keeping Shabbat to circumcision. They were obsessed with the human body, so circumcision was an extreme prohibition for them to the point that a mother who was caught circumcising a child was asked to have a child attached to her back, and then they would slice, almost like ISIS, they would slice the mother and the baby together to kill them. But that's how uh, ruthless they were. Now, imagine that enemy, and imagine the story. There's a story here that the Talmud says about a Jewish woman who goes and marries a Greek official. Marries that enemy that we just described. Let's read the words of the Talmud. Who wants to read the second reference? Please, go ahead. Mm -hmm. The holy temple was transformed into a pagan temple. In the midst of this turmoil was a Jewish woman, Miriam, a daughter of the priestly Bilga family, who served in the second holy temple. At this tragic period, she had completely abandoned her people, left her faith, and even married out to a top Greek military officer in charge of oppressing, murdering, and denigrating her own people. And then, as the Greeks entered the sanctuary, Miriam <coughs> entered with them, removed her shoe from her foot and stamped upon the altar with her sandal, crying out, Wolf, wolf, Lucas, Lucas, for how long will you continue to consume the offerings and money of the Jewish people without helping them in their time of destruction? Right, so that, that describes the sea. Lucas is, is the Greek word, by the way, for wolf. But let me ask you a question. If this woman intentionally, most probably, I mean, intentionally abandoned her people, joined the ranks of the enemy, why would she care now if God accepts the offering of uh, his people or not? If she consciously disconnected herself from the Jewish nation, so disconnect yourself here mentally, what do you care? Now you're going to shout at God? Until when will you continue to consume the offerings of your people without helping them in the times of distress? What does she care? But I think it is here we find the power and maybe even the tragedy of the Jewish soul. See, if a person is not faithful to himself and to his Jewish soul, to his Jewish identity, then it will continue to bother him. It will continue to, to ache him. Until, until it, and it will come out in the most mysterious ways, like, like it comes out now. But he won't be able to live a life with a peace of mind, with, with serenity, with focus, because the Jewish soul is squashed is trampled upon. Being faithful means, so were you faithful in your givings and takings? I think really means, were you faithful to, first and foremost, your own identity? And God is almost telling us, well, before you begin life, you should know you'll be asked that question because if you want to live a meaningful life in which you do actualize your potential, then remember, you have a Jewish soul here. 
And if you decide to ignore it, to abandon it, it's not going to help you. It's going to continue to fight against your, uh, your fight, and it's going to continue to shout and shout like it shouts right here from uh, the agony of Miriam, the daughter of Bilgah. You know, I tell this story quite often, but as a rabbi, and I'm sure Rabbi Shmuley can attest to this also, I mean, I, I hear this cry of the Jewish soul so often, but I'll never forget how about a year or so ago, I was uh, called by a wonderful, just a wonderful doctor in our community, Shiri Etzioni, some of you may know her, to uh, the Sherman House at Mayo, a hospice there. And she says, look, there's a Jewish man dying here, and he wants to see a rabbi. Can you come? I said, sure. I went to see him. I'll never forget his name, Sherwin Bash, 87-year-old Hollywood producer, very successful career. And as soon as I walked into the room, he tells me, Rabbi, I want you to know you are the first rabbi I've seen since my bar mitzvah. So I said to him, wow, you're the first rabbi you've seen since your bar mitzvah? He said, yes, I've avoided all of you. I said, but, you know, to avoid rabbis in America is pretty hard. You have as many rabbis as you have flies. So what... <laughs> what what caused you to avoid? He said, well, I couldn't stand what you stand for. I didn't like being Jewish, so I try to avoid you as much as possible. So I said to him, and why now? Why now? Now you're dying, so why now? If you've avoided us all your life, why now? And he said something that I'll always forget because it serves as a source of, of inspiration to me on my day-to-day -day life. He says to me, because I don't know, Rabbi, but... Something in me told me that I have to see a rabbi and say the Shema. Something in me told me that I have to see a rabbi and say the Shema. And I said to myself, you see, that's the Jewish soul. He may have tried to avoid it as much as possible, but at the end of life, boom, did it burst out. Something in me. And I really believe that that's, that's, that's what it means to be faithful. In order to have a meaningful life, and we, we can actualize our full self. We first have to recognize who we are, what our soul is about. Abandoning it won't help. And if we abandon it, eventually, somehow, somewhere, it will burst out as it did in the beautiful soul of that man. We said the Shema, by the way, we put on tefillin, and uh, he cried uh, for a long time, but the next day he passed on. And I think that his soul was waiting for that moment. But that's, that's what this Talmudic passage is teaching us. So faithfulness, first and foremost, um, is, uh, refers to the faithfulness towards our own souls, our own identity. I think that's why it's no, um, it's no coincidence that the first law, there are four books in the Code of Jewish Law with many, many, many thousands of laws. The 613 commandments are divided into many laws. The reason for that, by the way, is that 613 commandments of the Torah tell us the what's, but they don't tell us the how's. For example, it tells you respect your parents, right? One of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't tell you how. What does that mean? You have to bring them a cup of water every day, that you have to tie their shoes. What does it mean? The Torah doesn't tell you that. So for that, you have many laws. It means you can't call them by name. It means you can't sit in their seat. It means that you can't raise your voice towards them. It means a lot of things. So the Code of Jewish Law comes and tells us all of the hows. Now... The first law in the code of Jewish law, and I think it's no coincidence that it's the first law, is what? It's the following reference here. Who wants to read this? 
please. I have set the Lord before me constantly, <clears throat> and one should not be ashamed because of people who mock him. Right, one should not be ashamed because of people who mock him. In the Hebrew words. That's the first law. Why is it the first law? Because if we are to actualize our potential, if we are to live a life of meaning and purpose, we first have to know that we have to be ourselves. And by being ourselves, that may be that will evoke or arouse some mockery from without. doesn't matter. Be yourself. Without being yourself, you can't live life fully in a, in a full, meaningful way. So that's the first law. You know, the Kotzke Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Morgenstern, of, uh, some 250 years ago, we mentioned him here. He was one of the most uh, fiery Hasidic rabbis, a seeker of truth, a true seeker of truth. He could be very, very aggressive in his pursuit of truth and um, sometimes also not so nice. But the Kotzke Rebbe uh, famously said, and this is a powerful sentence, but listen carefully, he would say, if I am I... Because you are you, and you are you because I am I, and I am not, and you are not. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, then I am, and you are, and the world can be. In other words, if I am I, my entire existence is just in order to emulate yours, and the world can't be, we can't be, I can't be, you can't be, then it's a, it's a rat race that leads to nowhere. But if I am I because I understand what my purpose is, I understand who I am, I understand that I have a soul that is, is Jewish or whatever, but I, at least I embrace that identity, whichever identity I was given by God, then I can be, and if you do the same, you can be, and then we, the entire world, can also be. That's why uh, they say that I don't like the word. I know it's a big word these days. Maybe it's, a, it's, it's even an overused word, but I don't like the word unity. Now, it's not because I'm not for unity, but the word unity implies uni, one. It's almost like there's a big melting pot and we all have to, to forego of our differences in order to unite with the other. I don't think that's, that's a workable solution. I think that if I lose myself and you lose myself, like the Kotzke Rebbe said, the world can't be. I think the ultimate word is really the word harmony, right? I am me, you are you, and we can harmonize together. And that creates, by the way, the sweetest music. It's like a symphony. The piano needs to be the piano, the violin needs to be the violin, but we can't forego of ourselves. Otherwise, it doesn't, simply doesn't work. So, so I would almost always replace the word unity with the word harmony. But this is exactly what this is saying, being faithful to that me. And in a way, I think this is why, and beautifully said by Rabbi Schneerson, the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, this is why Adam and Eve were created alone. Most, or all creatures, animals were created by multiples, right? When God created horses, he created many horses together. When he created cows, many cows together. When he created human beings, he created one, he created another one. Why? And this is the answer of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's a, it's a beautiful answer, Rabbi Schneerson, of blessed memory. But let's read the, the last reference here. Anyone? Please. Why did he have to be lonely for a while so God formed his better half? The answer is simple but profound. God wanted to teach us a lesson. Human identity does not exist in relation to others. I 
am not a response to you. My value is never dependent on your validation or approval. My existence is never conditional on your acceptance of it. My self has absolute inherent value. My I has infinite dignity and is perfect the way it is. God loves each of us unconditionally, unequivocally, <coughs> not because of anything we do or what we don't do, but because our very I is divine. Okay, I couldn't say it better, but I will share with you um, a powerful study that was conducted uh, by a, a French scientist, Jean-Henri Favre, who um, did a, actually it was a cruel experiment, if you think about it, but uh, he took what's called processionary caterpillars. You don't find them here in Arizona. You do find them on oak trees in the east. Processionary caterpillars are caterpillars that follow one another. You see lines and lines on them sometimes on trees in the East Coast, mainly in Europe. You see them all over. But um, he asked himself a simple question. Do those caterpillars follow one another because they want to or because that's just the way they are wired? They follow one another. Can they independently decide where we want to go another way or can they not? So what he did, he took all of these processionary caterpillars and he actually put them around a pot of flowers, created a circle with them. And then he wanted to see if any of those caterpillars would break, uh, break from the circle and lead their own paths. So he did that, and unfortunately, none of them broke out of the circle. They continued on and on and on and on for hours until some began to die from exhaustion. And Eventually, those that began to die from exhaustion gave room for the ones behind them that eventually also followed the circle. And then he concluded, well, that's true. I guess that's the way processionary caterpillars are. But aren't some human beings also like that? <laughs> some follow the other, follow the tail of that, just to follow without knowing exactly what their purpose is, without being faithful to themselves. And they follow and follow and follow until they die. That's a big question. It's really a big question with John Refarb, but it's a question that God asks us again as, uh, as, as we move on to paradise. Were you faithful? First of all, were you faithful towards yourself? If you were faithful towards yourself, then most probably you were also faithful in all your givings and takings. And before we go to question number two, and please, I shouldn't be the only one speaking as I said, so if you want, if you want to say anything, please feel free to do so. But since we're celebrating Hanukkah, I'll share with you my favorite Hanukkah story. My favorite Hanukkah story is in a book called Fear No Evil by Anatoly Sharansky, Nathan Sharansky, um, who today is the head of the Jewish agency, the Sochnut. But as you all know, he was a refusenik who stood up against the communist regime um, in the Soviet Union. And Anatoly Sharansky, in fact, if you remember, I remember as a child the day he was freed. Uh, do you remember that? In 1986, I think it was. And I'll never forget this. The day he was freed, of course, all the camera crews were there to greet him as he came out of jail. And there were two KGB officers escorting him. And then all of a sudden, you see Mr. Sharansky walking in zigzags. Now, the camera crews <laughs> didn't quite know what to do, but you see they're moving in zigzags, too. And... <laughs> say the story of him because it's, it's just left such an impact um, as a child. Just think about this. But um, 
so, so he's walking in zigzag, and then he walks to this car, and this car eventually took him to a plane, that plane flew him to Germany, from Germany to Israel. But they asked him, why did you walk in zigzag? Well, what's wrong with you? And he said, because those two KGB officers that were escorting me out of jail told me, hey, go straight towards that car. I never listened to a word they said. You think now, once I'm freed, once they tell, when they tell me to walk straight, you really think I'm going to walk straight? I'm going to walk in zigzag. Why should I listen to them? But that's the man he was. Now, there's a very similar story that appears in his book, Fear No Evil, about Hanukkah. One day, he went on a hunger strike. Why? Because he had prepared a small Hanukkah, a small menorah to light in the gulag, and it was confiscated from him. And uh, the warden called him after a few days in which he was uh, in this, this hunger strike, and he said to him, you can find the story there, but he said to him, come on, let's not make a big deal out of this. Just go back to your cell and leave us alone. He said, no, it's my right to light a menorah. Today is Hanukkah. I want to light my menorah. The warden said, fine, you know, I'll let you light it in my office, but I don't tell anybody. The warden's name was Major Olsen. He took out his uh, little menorah, gave it back to Sharansky, and he said, go ahead, light it. Sharansky lit the menorah first by saying the blessings, right? Then he said the second blessing, and then all of a sudden, he hears a person whispering, Amen. He turns around, he doesn't see where this is coming from. Who does he see? Major. Austin in tears. And he says to him, oh, you said amen. He said, yes, and you don't understand. You just reminded me of my childhood. The next day, Major Olsen was nowhere to be found. He escaped Russia. Many years later, Sharansky continues to tell the story. He was at the Western Wall, and someone taps him on his shoulder. He turns around. He says, Mr. Sharansky, do you recognize me? I don't recognize you. Who are you? It's a man with a big keeper and so on. So who are you? He said, I'm that Major Olsen of many years ago. Thanks to you, I came back to my roots and I now live happily as a Jew in Israel. But what does this say? That once, if a person is honest towards himself, towards who he is, even fights for it in the gulag, in the Russian gulag, then it evokes respect, it evokes light, it evokes uh, many wonders. And I think this is, uh, therefore, the first question. Question number two. Let's, let's go to that. Um, does anyone want to read this? The next question and the Midrash that follows. Thank you. Good. Okay, good. I'm sorry. A little introduction to this Midrash. The Midrash is asking a simple question, which is, by the way, maybe a question that you ought to ask yourselves even before you look at the Midrash, because then it's going to make it too easy. But if you had to pick your favorite verse in the Torah, or even in a prayer book, which would it be? For, don't look at the Midrash yet. Just shout out some answers. Let's see. Come on. Use your imagination. What? Bereshit. Good. Very good. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. You know what they say about that. That in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and the rest was made in China. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but that's right. Verse number one. Okay. All right. What, what else? Kim Itziyant, etc. Oh, I like that. Kim Itziyant, etc. 
from Zion, Torah will come forth. Very good. And the word of God from Jerusalem. Very good. Okay, anyone else? The Shema. Good. The Shema, and by the way, that's one of the answers here offered. Very good. What else? Just use your imagination. Oh, that's the second verse. That's right, that the land uh, was full of um, chaos, maybe. That's the what? Entropy. Very good. So it's actually two words. Yeah. Vacuum is, is really the word for vo. To is entropy or chaos. Yeah. All right. Anyone else? Ah, it's Chaim, good. The Torah is like the tree of life. All right, very good. Let's see the answers that are offered by our sages here in the Midrash. Let's go. Let's continue. So one said, by the way, this is the book of the Chronicles of Man uh, from Genesis. Another sage, let's continue. Right. Very good. Okay. Finally, the fourth sage, Shimon, son of Pazi, cast his pitch for the epic verse of the Bible. It is called from the section in this week's portion that deals with the obligation during the time of the temple to give each day two lambs as an offering to God. One sheep we shall offer in the morning and the second sheep in the afternoon. This verse, according to Right. The opinion of Shimon Pazi, who said that the most defining verse of Judaism is what? That one sheep you should bring in the morning, one sheep you should bring in the afternoon. Do me a favor. What, that's the most defining verse. First of all, it's outdated. The times of the sacrifices are gone. 2,000 years old, and uh, that's it. They're in the past. Secondly, that's a more important verse than loving your fellows yourself. Is that a more important verse than the Shema? That even uh, Bereshit, Kimitzion, Etzchaim, is that Tovavo? Is that a more important verse than all of the verses you stated? What is he saying? And not only that, everyone agrees with him? Not even the majority, everyone. Everyone agrees with him? And I think that, again, this leads us to the key word in the second question. The second question that you said, fixed times for Torah study. I think the key word, again, is fixed. Or in Hebrew, kavata itim la Torah. Did you... Fix. What does it mean, fixed times? That means consistent times. And I think this is why this is the most important verse according to all sages. Because what this verse means is that your connection to God or your connection to doing that which is right is not a connection that is based on your feelings, on some spontaneous ecstatic moments. It's a connection that is built each and every day in every single uh, segment of your life, in the morning and in the afternoon. That consistency is what is most important in Judaism, according to Shimon and Pazian, and everyone agrees with him. I once asked my dear rabbi, and I've said this, I know, many times, because um, I think this is one of the most powerful things he's ever told me. My dear rabbi is Rabbi Dean Stanzel, a world scholar who's, uh, I think, transformed the landscape of Jewish literature in many, many ways and of Jewish world. Um, 
called by the Time magazine, once in the Millennium Scholar. Uh, Newsweek called him the genius of the highest order, a type of mind that comes around once every 2,000 years. But in any case, Rabbi Steinzeltz, I once asked him, what is the most, if you had to condense the idea of Judaism into one word, what would it be? No, he didn't say mitzvah. He didn't even say love. What he said was consistency. Consistency. Judaism is about being consistent. Now, I said two words. He said uh, consistent goodness. And that's, that's true. The more we devote ourselves to that which is good, the more we become good, and the more goodness uh, flourishes in the world. Uh, I think that's the idea, by the way, someone asked me the other day, why is it that Jews pray so often, three times a day? It's boring. At the end of the day, uh, you lose touch with the prayer. You lose touch with God. And I said to him, you're right, it's pretty boring. But I think that the big idea is uh, the idea of consistency. When we check in with God three times a day, then it creates a connection that is everlasting. If it's just based on our feelings, first of all, it's very ego-centered. If it's just about me and my feelings, then it's really not about God, if you think about it. And secondly, it doesn't change or refine the person. But if you create a structure that forces you to be consistent, then it can really create change. Or it's simply put, practice makes perfect. You know, Luciano Pavarotti, uh, the same is said about Vladimir Horowitz, who was uh, one of the greatest pianists, I think, ever. And I'd rather have the quote belong to him than to Luciano Pavarotti. Uh, Simply Luciano Pavarotti, I don't know if you know his life story. But he left his wife to marry his secretary, who was like 20 years younger than him. But it doesn't matter. I'm not going to go into it's not a... <laughs> But Vladimir Horowitz says, when I don't practice one day, I know about it. If I don't practice two days, my wife knows about it. If I don't practice three days, the world knows about it. <laughs> Why? Because if you lose that consistency, you lose a part of your perfection, of what makes you perfect. And that is, I think, key in Judaism. It's not so much about the, the spontaneity of the act, but it's rather about the consistency of the act. And that is eventually what refines you. And this is, again, quoting the Kotzker Rebbe, what he says about what we can learn from Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the dictator. The dictator uh, who drowned thousands and thousands of baby boys in the Nile River. But there's something we can learn even from him, according to the Kotzker Rebbe. And what is that? Let's read this. Does anyone want to read the next reference? Please, go ahead. Rabbi, Rabbi Benatham Mendel Morgenstern. In truth, I admire Pharaoh. The plagues kept coming. They became worse and worse, yet he never gave up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Furthermore, Pharaoh knew that ultimately he would be defeated. How can you overcome our almighty God? Nevertheless, he persevered with remarkable consistency. Right, okay, very good. Um, it's, and and that's, that's a trait to learn from Pharaoh. Of course, we ought to use it and channel it in a good way. But again, that's what God is referring to when he says to set fixed times. And I think, again, actualizing our life's potential very much depends not just on being faithful to ourselves, but again, but then translating that in a consistent manner, day after day. Question number three, and that is... Uh, yes, please. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, and the lamp would be the deterrent, because that's expensive. <laughs> yes, yes. But like you said, now what if, uh, now what if I heard you right, uh, now is prayer, right? So what substitutes the sacrifices today is prayer. And in fact, like you mentioned, uh, the morning prayer, the morning lamb is the morning prayer, and the afternoon lamb is the mincha prayer, the afternoon prayer. And that comes in the most inconvenient times usually of the day because you have to pray in the afternoon before the sun sets, especially now in the winter. It's usually smack in the middle of your day and uh, of, your, of your job. And you still have to pray and uh, it's the most inconvenient thing. But on the other hand, I think that's why God says this is the most important, uh, cherished prayer for me. According to the Talmud, God cherishes the mincha prayer, the afternoon prayer most because you're doing it when it's inconvenient. When it's convenient for you, you might be doing it also for yourself. And when you're doing it when it's not convenient, when you're completely devoted, just because, just because of God. You otherwise wouldn't do it. You're in the middle of work. But you're doing it just because of God. Then God says, ah, oh, that I like. But uh, that's, that's how the lambs are substituted today, through prayer. Is that what you were asking? No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, go, Okay. <laughs> Right. And so, but now we don't do that. Oh. So, why were the lambs important? And also, Mincha is the shortest, uh, uh, shortest service in the middle of the day, uh, cutting off your work day, supposedly. Right. I once studied with a rabbi who said he knew someone who did a two minute and 34 second Mincha. He was in awe. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, that's a terrible thing. I, I, that's a terrible thing. Uh, just as a side note, <laughs> I'm just, um, I'm, I'm just wondering whether I should say this or not. But um, uh, Renee Fox here can attest to this. But I, I am very much against having a set time in my synagogue of when we finish the prayer. We have to finish by 11:30. Uh, why? Because. Uh, Prayer is, is an intimate moment with God. In fact, the Zohar says, and because Kabbalah says that, I uh, am free to say this too, but it compares prayer to what? To intimate relationships, to sex. It says that God, uh, prayer, when one prays, it's like having an intimate relationship with God. Now, no one sits with the clock and says that we have to finish by this and this time. When you're in, in an intimate relationship, same goes here, right? Two minutes, 34. I don't know what type of relationship that is. But, <laughs> but <laughs> having said that, having said that, you're right. When you offered a lamb, you, you gave something valuable to God. What do you give today? That's what you're asking. That's what you're asking. So you're right. Today you don't give a valuable item to God when you pray. But I think giving your heart, giving your soul is 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 what's most valuable. When you brought a sheep, maybe you just brought the sheep and that was it. Now you really have to get involved in the prayer. Now you really have to become intimate, like we said. So that, that's, that's one thing you're giving, and also you're giving your time. Back then you would drop off a sheep, and you would tell the priest, hey, go and sacrifice it for me. Today it's not like, like that. Today you can't say, hey, you go pray for me. 
You have to do it yourself. So time is also a value, and I think that's another thing you're giving to God. Even though you remind me of the story of Menachem Begin who welcomed Henry Kissinger to the Jerusalem Zoo, and he said, you know that in our zoo, uh, we have the fulfillment of the prophecy that the lion will live with the lamb. Actually, the prophecy is the wolf will live with the lamb. And he went to show him a lamb sitting right next to the wolf of the Jerusalem Zoo. He said, wow, that's amazing. How'd you do it? He said, it's easy. We give him a new lamb every day. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> but that's, that's what we gave God every day. Okay. All right, so that's question number two. Did you set fixed time, consistency? Question number three, another uh, hint here we have towards the way we can actualize a potential is in another key word of this third question. Who wants to read? Please, let's read the third question too. Being aware, the where beyond the way. Mm hmm. Go ahead, let's read the. the First two references, and I want to elaborate on this a little bit. Our days are as a shadow upon the earth. Right. Bless you. This verse means that there are three types of shadows. One is the shadow of a bird, which flies by quickly and casts its shadow, but for a fleeting moment. The second is the shadow cast by a wall. And finally... There is a shadow generated by the tree. Right, okay. Now, what does it mean to be fruitful and multiply? It doesn't just mean having children, biological children, physical children. I think what this means also is having spiritual children. Where we people who made an impact on others. Do you know what's most interesting is that the word for life in Hebrew, I've said this to some of you, but the word for life in Hebrew is in the plural tense, chayim. There is no word for one life in Hebrew. Why? Because life is only measured if you've included in your life other lives. If you've impacted other lives, then you've lived. If you've lived just a selfish life, just to yourself, one life, you really haven't lived. Chaim needs to be in the plural tense. That's when it's life. Otherwise, it's not life. And um, in a way, I think this is what this question is asking us. Have we impacted others? Or did we live a life in which the I was at the center? And it was only about me, me, me. I know we live in a generation like that where it's about the iPhone and the iPod and the iPad and everything is I, I, I. Only one company got it right, and that's YouTube. Even the Wii. You know the Wii? Your kids play with the Wii? The Wii, you can't just write W-E. Yeah, W-E, which would also say Wii. It has to include two I's. Wii is W-E-I-I. So it's like... Everywhere you go, you see the eye. But that's not the life we, we, should, we, we should strive to live. It's a life where the you actually comes even before the I. We're completely dedicated to the you, to being fruitful and multiply. And that's really what life is about. Now, what this Midrash is saying, I think alludes to this in a very powerful, very powerful way. It says that there are three types of lives. One life is like the life of a shadow of a bird. What is a shadow of a bird? A shadow of a bird is fleeting. One second it's here, the next second it's flying, it's there. And those are the lives that have lived only for themselves. They really didn't leave any shadows, any impact. Then you have another life that is like the shadow of a wall. The shadow of a wall is not there all the time. 
It's not there in the middle of the day. It's there either in the evening or in the morning. Right? Same is with that second type of life. Some people live lives where when everything was going well for them, the sun was shining, then they forgot about everybody. But when things began to become a little bit dark, like it is at sunrise or at sunset, then they said, oh gosh, we better wake up quickly, leave an impact. That happened, by the way, to Alfred Nobel. How did the Nobel Prize come to be? Alfred Nobel read his obituary by mistake one day. People thought he was dead. Now he was the inventor of the dynamite. And he said to himself, gosh, is that the way I want to be remembered? As, <laughs> as a person who's responsible for so many deaths? I better change that. And he decided to create the Nobel Prize that rewards people for their great achievements. So it dawned on him, I'm not going to leave the shadow of, of, of a bird. Uh, now, now it's getting a little dark for me. I, I just saw my obituary. Let me leave another type of shadow. These are the people who are compared to the shadows of the wall. And then you have people who are like the shadows of a tree. The shadow of a tree is permanent. It's always there. Sometimes it's less there or more there, but it's always there. These are the people who are completely dedicated to others. Their whole obsession in life is to help the other, is to try and do as many good deeds, be as kind as possible to as many others. And I think this is exactly what this Midrash is speaking about. Now, in a way, what it is telling us is that we ought to think about this, not just to think about this, but actually to live like shadows of trees. There's a beautiful Mishnah in the Ethics of Our Fathers that says, that one should repent a day before he dies. One should repent the day before he dies. But one second, no one knows when they'll die. So what does that mean that they should repent the day before they die? It means that you should repent today. Today might be your last day. I don't know if you remember uh, the tragic story of Rabbi Berger, Kenneth Berger of New York in 1989, but in 1987, I think, he gave a very powerful um, Yom Kippur sermon to his congregation about the Challenger in 1986, the Challenger that exploded in midair. Um, by the way, it, ex it exploded because there was, um, there was uh, what's it called? Thank you, an O-ring missing, which uh, I think teaches also a lesson in and of itself, that sometimes if one detail is missing, that's why I think Judaism is so obsessed with details. It's one detail missing, it could explode. But um, he, was, he devoted his sermon to some new findings about the Challenger. People thought at the very beginning that everyone died instantly, the astronauts died instantly. Then they find out, no, that they were alive as it plummeted towards the ocean, 65,000 feet. That lasted for about five minutes. The astronauts were alive for about five minutes before they died, and he asked his congregation, what do you think they were thinking about during those last five minutes of their lives? It's, it's, it's a good question. Now, for him, unfortunately, it was a tragic prophecy. In 1989, Rabbi Berger was with his wife and his three children. He was on a flight from Denver to Chicago, or the other way around, Chicago to Denver. And uh, the plane lost its engines in mid-flight. It was on the way to crashing. It did crash. Him and his wife and two of his three children died. But they had about five minutes, too, to, to do something, to call their loved ones like 
the stories of 9-11 and so on. Uh, before they died, apparently, according to his daughter, he hugged his family and encouraged them, and so on and so forth. But it's a question that he asked a few years earlier. What would you do if you only had five minutes to live? And in a way, that's the question that the Midrash is shouting here. What would we do? Why is it doing that? Not to, of course, infuse us with all sorts of pessimistic feelings, but rather to tell us that life is about so much more than me and my pleasures. It has to be directed towards the you, creating shadows. And um, there's a beautiful year, we can read it very quickly, a beautiful story that some of you may know about a professor that again conveys this message. Who wants to read this? The shadow of a bird, a professor stood before his philosophy class. Anyone? The professor stood before his philosophy class, had some items in front of him. When the class began, wordlessly he picked up a very large and empty jar and proceeded to fill it with golf balls. He then asked the students if the jar was full. Right. They agreed that it was. So the professor then picked up a box of pebbles, poured them into the jar. He shook the jar lightly. He then asked the students again if the jar was full. They agreed it was. The professor next picked up a box of sand and poured it into the jar. Of course, the sand filled up everything else. He asked once more if the jar was full. The students responded with a unanimous yes. The professor then produced two cans of beer from under the table and poured the entire contents into the jar, effectively filling the empty space between the sand. Now, said the professor, as the laughter subjected, <laughs> I want you to recognize that this jar represents your life. The golf balls are the important things. Your God, your soul, your family, your children, your health, your friends, your passion, your conscience. Things that if everything else was lost and only they remained, your life would still be full. The pebbles are the other things that matter, like your job, your house, your car. The sand is everything else, the small stuff. If you put the sand into the jar first, he continued, there is no room for the pebbles or the golf balls. The same goes for life. If you spend all your time and energy on the small stuff, you will never have room for the things that are important to you. Pay attention to the things that are critical to your happiness. Take time to build a relationship with your soul. There will always be time to clean the house. Hear that, lady? <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Take care, men. Take care of the first. The things that really matter, set yeah. your priorities. The rest is sand. When he had finished, one of the students raised her hand and with a puzzled expression inquired what the beer represented. The professor smiled. I'm glad you asked. It just goes to show you that no matter how full your life may seem, there's always room for a couple of <laughs> There you go. Very good. Which, by the way, reminds me again, I'll share with this with you too, but another piece of advice that my rabbi once gave me as a teenager, he called me once and he said, do you know what the difference is between a, a wise man and a fool? Let's try to answer the question unsuccessfully. And he said, it's very simple. The wise man makes the important important and the trivial trivial, and the fool makes the important trivial and the trivial important. And it's so true. What's important in life is the shadows that we create. The trivial should be trivial, but if we can focus on the important and make it important, then I think we, would have, we will have created shadows of trees. 
I, I um, want to skip, I and mean, we spoke a little bit about the shadow of a wall and the shadow of a tree. Yes. Can I just add? Please. What you just said reminds me, I, I have an uncle who was a, a rabbi here in town, mm. and he, I was just coming out and a freshman in college, and he said to me, if you have a, a very big appetite, now you have to develop a sense of taste. <laughs> That's very good. Beautiful. Very good. That's excellent. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. No, that's, that's powerful. Very good. Very good. And by the way, that will affect, I think, uh, every sphere of our life. If we think about the shadow, if that's what's in front of our eyes all the time, being fruitful and multiply, then it affects our lives tremendously. Um, I'm not going to bore you with too many stories, but there's a composer, a world composer by the name of Benjamin Zander. Uh, he gave a beautiful TED Talk not long ago. Uh, you may have seen about uh, classical music. Uh, I'm a big classical music fan, so, so maybe it won't interest you. But uh, the, the conclusion of his talk is fascinating, whether you're a classical music fan or not. But uh, he tells the story of an Auschwitz survivor that he once met. And she told him her story. And she said that when she was just 15 years old and her brother was just eight years old, they were torn out of their house and led on cattle cars. In the cattle car, she looks at her brother, and she sees that he's missing his shoes. So what does she say to him? She's like any good sister would say, what are you doing? You left your shoes at home. I dare you. You're so stupid. She didn't realize that those were the last words she ever said to her brother. He disappeared from that point on. And at that moment, she took upon herself never to say something that cannot stand as the last words she's ever said. Never to say something as the last, that, that can't stand as the last words that she, sa- she ever said. I think it's, it's true. If you think of, of, of the power of life and the vulnerability of life, then you care careful even about your own words. And that's, that's what this Midrash, I think, is telling us. This is what this question is telling us in the way that's really what infuses meaning and actualization of our purpose in life. And then question number four, I want to jump to the next page. I do want to point out, you know, that maybe just to look at the reference of the top of the page, or top of the fourth page, but, you know, it's no coincidence also that the first question in the Bible, we spoke about the first law in the Code of Jewish Law, but what's the first question in the Torah? First question. First question is the question of God to Adam, Ayeka, where are you? Why? Adam had just sinned. He ate from uh, the forbidden tree, and then he hides, and God says to him, where are you? What does it mean? Doesn't God know everything? God knew where he was. So why is he asking him, where are you? And the answer is very simple. It's true. God knew where he was. But Adam didn't know where he was. That's the sin. The sin confused him completely. Now he lost track. He lost his sense of direction in life. He himself didn't know where he was. But it's interesting that God asked him not, who are you, Adam? Which could have been a good, legitimate question. But he asked him, where are you? And that's the first question of the Bible. Why? Because I think the task of every human being is to first and foremost be aware of his surroundings, of his where. What good can I do to my surroundings? You come second. Who are you will come second. But you have to be, first and foremost, aware of the impact you can have on the where. 
on the surroundings. But that's question three. Question four, let's read the next question. Did you hope and walk, and then read uh, maybe the first reference that belongs to that? Anyone? Please. Now if you obey, Exodus 19. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right. The fourth question is, and the final question, did you hope and work for the world's redemption? What this is, I think, saying is that we cannot lose focus on our big task of life. Yes, we, each and every one of us, has the power to change the world. Sometimes we say to ourselves, well, what we've done today, what we've done in our lives is enough. But so long as the world isn't changed, we still have to work towards that. I think we were called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation because we have that power to change the world. God almost is infusing in us this mission. You cannot rest until the world is changed, and everyone can do that. You know, uh, I mentioned that last class, but we all start off with big dreams in life. We all want to change the world. Unfortunately, we hit brick walls, and that changes our dreams. But in a way, what God is saying, I believe in you. You can change the world. That's the fourth question. Don't compromise those dreams. And I think, you know... Um, the, it's interesting, but there's a, a beautiful law, a Jewish law, and I'm sure you've seen this before, that you are not allowed to count Jews. You're not allowed to count human beings even. You can't say uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, when people count for a minion, they usually say not one, not two, not three. Have you heard that before? No. Oh, okay. They don't want to count. They can't count. It's, it's part of the code of Jewish law. You can't count people. Why? That's because if you count a person, what you're actually conveying, what you're saying is that you are only one. You are only two. But a person is so much more than one. That's why when Moses was asked to count the Jewish people, God also told him you can't count them. How was he going to count them? They had to give a half a shekel. And Moses had to count all of the halves. And then he knew how many Jews they were. This is in times of the desert uh, before they built the tabernacle as after the grand exodus from Egypt. But what was God really telling Moses? Don't count them because they were so much more than one. They were so much more than their bodies. How they worth? They worth through their giving. The more one gives, the more... A person really counts. I think that's why, just think about this. How many Jews are there in the world today? About 13, 14, 15 million Jews, right? Does anyone have a better number than that? No. Now, if you ask someone in the street, how many Jews do you think they are? You know what the answer will be? I tried that once at Safeway. <laughs> how many Jews do you think they'll tell you? 100 million, right. 200 million, maybe. I got that answer. 200 million. Now, how come? We're only 13 million. How come people think there's so many? I think because we've always understood that our power was in our giving. That's really how we count. The more we give, the more our value increases. It's not the bodies. It's not, it's not that that counts. 13 million, yes. But if we give, if we dedicate ourselves to giving, we'll be worth so much more. We'll be worth 100 million, 200 million. And really, Jews give everywhere. Yes, there might be a very small number of Jews in bodies, but there's a very big number of Jews in soul because of their ability to give. 
you know, the, there's, a, there's an American author by the name of David Himmelfarb who put it jokingly saying, it's not jokingly, it's the reality, who said that uh, the number of Jews in the world is smaller than the uh, Chinese, uh, than the, um, than the error of, um, how do you put it, the statistical error in the Chinese census, okay? It's smaller than that. Yet, again, we, people think that there are so many more Jews. I think it's because we've always understood that if we want to be counted, then we have to give. And if we can give and give and give and give, then our value will be so much more than just our single bodies. And in a way, I think this is what this is saying, that... Yes, we're only one, but that one can change the whole world if it dedicates itself to giving. And in a way, this is uh, why, and I want to jump to the very last reference here, this is why, if you think about this, Rosh Hashanah has become a Jewish holiday, even though it shouldn't be a Jewish holiday. Why Rosh Hashanah celebrates the birth of the world, or the creation of the world, the culmination of the creation of the world. So it shouldn't be a Jewish holiday. It should be maybe a world holiday, a universal holiday. But it's a Jewish holiday. Why is it a Jewish holiday? Because of the following reason. Let's, let's conclude here with the last reference. Does anyone want to read? Please, please, please either one. Okay. I'll split it with you. Oh, good. So we've got Good. Why is Rosh Hashanah the Jewish New Year that celebrates the creation of the world? The answer touches on the essence of Judaism's mission statement. The role of the Jew is to impact positively the entire world, as we say in the Eleni prayer, to repair the world under the sovereignty of God. We were chosen to inspire all of humanity, to become beacons of love, light, and hope, to infuse life with unwavering ethical morals, values, goodness, holiness, and surpassing spiritual beauty. As we pray in each service of Rosh Hashanah, but everything that has been made know that you are its maker. Right. Uh, and I'm getting lost here, so... Let every creature... Let every creature understand that you have formed it. And let everything within life's breath in its nostrils proclaim. Hashem, the God of Israel, is king. And his kingship rules over everything. This is more than a prayer. It is a mission statement. Rosh Hashanah is our holiday because we take responsibility for the world. The celebration of creation is a Jewish festival because we have a calling to lead the world from redemption to redemption, from exile towards Mashiach, towards the times of the Messiah. Very good. So what this is saying is that even as we fulfill our purpose by thinking about the shadow we want to leave, by thinking about of being faithful to ourselves and, and of course, uh, trying to, to be as uh, you know, fruitful and multiply and so on, even then we can't lose sight of our general mission of changing the world. There's a cute story about a young child who once, uh, was once asked, uh, it was part of a class who was asked by their teacher to write their dreams in life. And the young child, instead of writing a whole essay, what he did is actually he drew the horse ranch that he wanted to build for himself, and the big dreams that he had for this horse ranch with the many horses he wanted to have in it and so on and so forth. And he drew it over 20 papers. Now, because he didn't write the essay, when he handed in over uh, his project, the teacher looked at it for a little bit and then she wrote him a big F. He looked at the F and he said, teacher, why did you write an F? 
And he said, because I asked you to write an essay, and by the way, your dreams are completely unrealistic. <laughs> but if you rewrite your essay, I can consider giving you a better grade. The student said, you know what? You keep the F, and I'll keep my dreams. <laughs> but in a way, I think that's what life is truly about. That's how we actualize our potential to the fullest. When we think of those big dreams, even if people tell us, no, these are Fs, you're crazy. You really want to change the world? You really want to leave that much of a shadow? You tell them, you keep the F, I'll keep my dream. Run after them and fulfill them to the very last detail. Yes? Sort of makes me think of, um, of something else that I think is uniquely Jewish. Yes. And that is, when we hear about a Jewish person who has done something very wrong, like mm. thinking, for instance, Madoff, right. it's, like, it, it's like, how could this be? You know, and some of this is sort of a part of this. It's outside of, of our role, right. of, our, of, of, how, of how we see ourselves, I think, as a people. Right, right. Right, right. We have, yeah. That's true. When we hear somebody, when we hear that something bad has been committed by someone who's Jewish, uh -huh. I think we have that reaction. It's like, oh my God. Right. First of all, now that we think everybody, like all Jews are like this, but it's really, you're Jewish and you can do this? Right. It just doesn't compute. Right. But that's the point, and that's what I was going to say. I think it's because, in a way, we, we, we are given a task as Jews. Now, every, I'm, I'm, there's no, no discrimination. I think every religion has its own task. As we said, the goal is to create harmony, not unity. But um, I think we, we were given a task as Jews to better the world. And that's why it affects us so much. Because as Jews, uh, we can't understand how people with the same mission as ours, in a way, do the opposite. And it affects us. Absolutely. On the other hand, we also have, look, Israel is called a startup nation, right? Uh, we, we, we've created startups that have changed the world. Um, I think, again, it comes from that same yearning, from that same desire to work and hope for the world's redemption. Yeah. Anyone else? Any questions? Yes. Yes. Yes, Carl. In the world that does not believe that they are responsible in some way for the redemption of the world and leaving the place better for having been there? It's a good question. Uh, I'm not too knowledgeable about the tribes of the world, but I will say this, um, that if we, look, if we look at history, yes, we've had many nations that have tried to be responsible for the world, but I think the Jews have tried to be responsible in a very different way. And maybe that should be the, the emphasis here of this question. Uh, as we say in the Aleinu prayer, right? We've tried to be responsible uh, towards the world by influencing it, not by having power over it, by empowering it, by elevating it, not necessarily by putting it down. The Romans, the Greeks... Others also have tried to change the world, but rather by imposing their power, not empowering it. So I think the Jewish vocation is, is a vocation of, of influence, of elevating the world, of repairing the world. And um, 
I think that's why, you know, as opposed to, now think of the finer religions, Buddhism, Hinduism. I think that's why Jews don't, don't spend years in isolating themselves as monks. Because we have a deep responsibility towards the world. We can't be content by meditating on the peak of a mountain uh, for life. Um, so even from that perspective, we, we feel like our task is here, not there. That's a good question. It's a question to research. Really. I can only speak from a Jewish perspective. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Right. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yes, Gila. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It amazes me that here we are, barely alive, barely this tiny fledgling nation, and she had the desire, this powerful desire to send, and she did. She continued to send people to the continent of Africa. Right. She really wanted. She wanted to help them. Hmm. The other thing that amazes me is that I believe that Israel is now involved in helping about 39 countries around the world. Oh wow. Right. Right. And again, when you think about Israel and its unique tininess, right. and unique stressors, and its neighbors that are sometimes not very friendly, that it still has the capability of going around the world mm. and sending its people to help the rest of right. the nation. Beautiful. That's true. Very good. Very good. Okay, two more. Yes. So why did they hate us? <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's a whole different lesson. It's a whole different lesson. I'll give you Hitler's, Hitler's answer. Hitler was asked why he hates the Jews. He said because they brought two things to the world, circumcision and morality. Yes? So in the very beginning, you talked about how when you were growing up in South Africa, yeah. that you heard the expression, uh, the brain is a terrible thing to waste. Yes. Yes. Well, you weren't living here in the United States, perhaps. Okay, in the 1960s, no. 1960s. All right. When Jews, especially, yeah. were very involved with civil rights. Right. And the slogan was, the mind is a terrible thing to waste, mm -hmm. when Jews, especially, gave money to the NAACP and other organizations to send young black children to school to college. Beautiful. That was the slogan. Wow. So they uh, stole it. Wow. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's beautiful. Very good. Very, very good. Love it. All right, thank you very much, everyone. A happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. 
At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.